Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming out this morning. Um, you know, a few years ago, it would have been necessary for us to talk about what Belt and Road Initiative actually is. What does BRI mean? Um, that is certainly not the case uh, today. There's so much coverage, so much commentary, um, so much press generally on the whole concept. Everyone has a has a um, an idea about what it is and what it's attempting to do. Um, what the Chinese intentions are behind it. In fact, in terms of nomenclature, of course, it wasn't uh, BRI from the beginning. It was called a couple different things. At one point, Silk and Road Economic Belt and the Maritime Silk Road, as they rolled those things out. They called it the One Belt, One Road Initiative um, for a little while, until I think that Beijing came to the conclusion that it sounded a little bit too exclusive to call it the One Belt, One Road, although it certainly made perfect sense to call it that. Uh, and then finally settled on BRI. But uh, none of these changes in nomenclature actually uh, changed the substance of the initiative. And it's that substance that we're here to talk about today. Seen from a geopolitical perspective, I understand it's a very big deal. A friend of mine in Singapore likes to tell me that it's an attempt by the Chinese to create a common geopolitical space that they dominate. For me, a lot of geopolitics seems like metaphysics. Uh, more than it does political science, so I'll let the faithful and the audience judge uh, what exactly that means and, and, and how important that is. But I can certainly testify to the impact it's had on perceptions in the region, particularly in India and in Japan. I think myself and all of our panels have heard that from the Indians and, and the Japanese in particular, but others in the region are very concerned about the BRI, uh, in addition to seeing some benefit in the, the economic side of it. And, at the very least, from a political perspective, it's obviously intended to um, increase Chinese influence around the world in addition to whatever kind of economic impact it has in China. And that has an impact on uh, US interests, uh, both in the region uh, and beyond. So we are here to talk about change in some regard, however, not in, the, in what we call uh, China's trillion dollar infrastructure project. Uh, but how perceptions are changing about it and how reactions are evolving both in the Indo-Pacific but also in Beijing, how, how, uh, how things are changing about uh, the way the Chinese themselves and the, and the government and party in Beijing see it. So to help us through that, we have three very fine panelists. Uh, first, we're gonna turn to Jeff Smith, who is Heritage's own um, research fellow covering South Asia. Uh, Jeff came to the Heritage Foundation just a little over a year ago from the American Foreign Policy Council, where he served as director of the Asian Security 
program there. He's auditor, uh, author and editor of two books that are out right now, Asia's Quest for Balance, China's Rise and Balancing in the Indo-Pacific, which very much gets at what we're talking about today, gives a, a much broader um, perspective to, to all of these issues. He's also author of the cold piece, China-India Rivalry in the 21st Century, in fact, is an expert on, on that particular relationship and dynamic. Jeff is also the author of a recently published heritage paper on precisely the issue that we're talking about today called China's Belt and Road Initiative, Strategic Implications and International Opposition. You can pick up a copy of that outside if you're watching online or on television. You can go to heritage.org and download a copy of his, of his paper. Jeff will talk to some of the substance of that in his own remarks today. Now, Jeff will tell you that I'm his boss, and uh, that's true. But I count myself as the fortunate one because his office is right next to me, and uh, I can tap his brain on a very regular basis, and he really can't say no. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the advantage. Um, then we'll turn to um, Yun Sun. Yun Sun is co-director of the East Asia Program and director of the China Program at the Stimson Center. Yun Sun has done some other interesting things in Washington. She worked at Brookings. Uh, for a while, but she's also worked in Beijing. She was the China analyst for the International Crisis Group, specializing on China's foreign policy toward conflict countries in the developing world. And she did that work from Beijing. So she's particularly well equipped to talk about the Chinese perspective. She's been looking at it in some de detail for a long time. And then we'll turn to Dan Kleiman. Uh, Dan is senior fellow in the Asia Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, CNAS. Before joining CNAS, Kleiman worked in the Office of Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, where he served as Senior Advisor for Asia Integration. Dan and Abigail Grace, who was recently on NSC staff, just came out a couple of months ago with a paper entitled Power Play Addressing China's Belt and Road Strategy. So Dan comes to this with a lot of very freshly developed perspectives on what the U.S. policy response should be, and so it's, I think, appropriate and, and fitting and very useful, actually, to have him uh, finish up our panel discussion. Then we'll turn it over to the audience um, and take some questions and, and, and hopefully have a good conversation here on the topic. So with that, um, let me turn it to Jeff to get us started. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. Um, Thank you to Heritage for hosting this event. Thank you to the panelists for coming out today. And thank you uh, for all those in the audience who have interest in this event and all those watching from home. Um, maybe the sort of headline headliner for my remarks is that the BRI has a, a brand problem at the moment. Just a few tidbits of news this month, I think, help highlight and underscore that reality. Just this month, the EU, India, and the US worked to scrub or remove any positive mention of the Belt and Road Initiative from any UN resolutions. There were, as of last year, three separate UN resolutions that in some way offered a degree of praise for the BRI. Uh, these three uh, groups, India, the US, and the EU, worked together last December to have the BRI removed from two of those, and this year they successfully had the third resolution scrubbed of any praise of the BRI. There was a report this month that China has commissioned internal reports 
highlighting the backlash to the BRI with the aim of continuing Xi's outward push at a time when the economy is struggling. Authorities have stepped up scrutiny of BRI projects and investment and are deliberating possible regulations. And I think Yoon will talk about this more. But there's more uh, greater signs, it seems, every month and a recognition in Beijing that the narrative surrounding the BRI has become negative and, from Beijing's perspective, problematic. Uh, Andrew Small, a noted expert on China and particularly China-Pakistan relations, this month said the first phase of the Belt and Road is effectively over. A new model has not yet emerged, but it is clear that the old one, almost entirely focused on speed and scale, is no longer sustainable. With the possible exception of Italy, as far as I know, no major Western country has signed a Belt and Road cooperation agreement or memorandum of understanding. And the trend in most cases is moving in the opposite direction toward greater negativity toward the BRI or hostility toward the BRI. And we've seen that reflected in, frankly, an unprecedented wave of measures uh, unveiled by Western countries over the last year to restrict foreign investment um, sort of implicitly directed at China. So when I think about concerns about the BRI, and this is a relatively new phenomenon, Belt and Road has been around for five years. And as of a year and a half ago, if you go back to just June of 2017, there was only one country in the world that was vocally critical of the BRI, and that was India. And the shift in the United States came in about August of last year. Uh, shortly after a trip to India, Secretary of Defense Mattis came back and offered some very vocal and direct criticism of the BRI in testimony, congressional testimony. And that opened the floodgates. Shortly after that, you saw Australia began to voice its own concerns. The European Union and a succession of U.S. officials have, have now sort of unveiled a, a number of criticisms against the BRI, and the tone toward the Belt and Road Initiative has fundamentally changed across Western democracies since midway through last year, and the opposition that India has expressed almost from the outset has, has continued. I'd like to separate these concerns into two categories, direct concerns and sort of indirect strategic concerns. So some of these are inherent to the BRI, the concerns that are being voiced by, by the West and others. They relate to the lack of standards, transparency, and accountability. These are things you're familiar with. I'm sure you've heard before if you've been watching the BRI, the way that deals have been done in secret and have contained objectionable provisions, the way that the, these deals have facilitated corruption and nepotism, the risk that they are undermining existing lending institutions and international standards, and producing a race to the bottom. In some cases, these BRI cooperation deals appear to be a one-way street, where participating nations assume large sums of Chinese debt, paying high rates of interest to Chinese financial institutions who are compensating Chinese firms using Chinese materials and Chinese workers who are being cycled back into the Chinese economy, whose earnings are. According to a study by CSIS, uh, Chinese firms use 89% Chinese contractors and only 7.6% local contractors. That's in contrast with multilateral development banks who traditionally use closer to 40% local contractors. There are certainly questions about the financial sustainability and the risk of debt distress 
uh, for countries participating in the BRI. Uh, according to RWR advisory, of 270 BRI projects that they're tracking across the globe, 32% of them are now on hold for financial problems. I think Pakistan presents a, an interesting case. The CPEC corridor, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, is by some accounts the largest uh, BRI project on the books. As much as 62 or $63 billion has been pledged by China in this China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Pakistan's external debt payments next year will surge by 65% from $7.7 billion annually to $12.7 billion. Meanwhile, its foreign exchange reserves over the last two years have fallen 40% from $16.1 billion to $10 billion. That is uh, unsustainable. China's own tax administration in March warned that Pakistan's capacity to repay debts is extremely low. And the return on investment, Chinese investment in Pakistan, is very low. And in some case, may be supporting bad debt. 23 of the 70 countries that are participating in the BRI are at risk of debt distress, according to the Center for Global Development. Eight are in serious trouble, including Djibouti, Kyrgyzstan, Laos, the Maldives, Mongolia, Montenegro, Pakistan, and Tajikistan. Those are the direct concerns I have with the BRI. There are a separate set of concerns strategic concerns that are not inherent to the BRI, but that are being merged with and amplified by the BRI. And these are concerns about the way that China does business, about the rise in assertiveness and nationalism and the changes to Chinese foreign policy that we've seen largely since 2008. The outgrowth of Chinese sharp power the intolerance for dissent, the harassment of Chinese dissidents abroad, the arrest of foreigners in China, the crackdown on the academic freedom. By most counts, most China experts will tell you that there has been a shift over the past decade in China's not just foreign policy but domestic policy toward more assertive nation, uh, in some ways a more repressive nation at home. And the BRI, as an extension of Chinese influence, has amplified some of these concerns and, and sort of uh, served, to, served as a proxy for some of these concerns. And this outgrowth of sharp power, I think China's Global Times had, a, I thought, a very interesting article on sharp power last year. And this is what the op-ed said, December 2017. China's sharp power starkly contrasts with soft power, as typically understood in the West. Soft power centers on attraction and persuasion, yet sharp power revolves around manipulation and distraction. The article insisted China's use of stealth to shape public opinions and influence the influencers is undoubtedly sharp, but not coercive. China is simply taking advantage of the situation rather than undermining the Western democratic system. It concluded while the U.S. and its allies have long been bent on transforming China through peaceful evolution, what an irony it is to see this trend in reverse. So with these strategic concerns, you've seen a number of Chinese practices 
related to the Belt and Road that have uh, given us pause. And I think Sri Lanka, in some ways, presents a sort of model example for why some in the West and in India are so concerned about the nexus between economics and geopolitics and the Belt and Road and the way in which ostensibly economic investments may be used to advance China's strategic agenda. And many of you are sort of familiar with that case if you've been following the Belt and Road. Um, but essentially there was large Chinese investments being put into white elephant projects, a port in Hambantota, an airport in Hambantota that have very little commercial value, uh, deals that were signed in secret that were later found to have contained very objectionable provisions, including granting land and airspace, granting China sovereign control over land and airspace. Um, there were there was a report in the New York Times that said Sri Lankan officials said that from the start, the intelligence and strategic possibilities of the port's location were a part of the negotiations. Chinese demands centered on handing over equity in the port rather than allowing any easing of the t financial terms. So there's several, uh, actually, instances of Chinese practices in Sri Lanka that, that have caused concern here in the West, but even in India. This, in fact, is why I think India was one of the countries that opposed the BRI from the start. And I think it's also important to note that this, you know, these investments in Sri Lanka and these concerns date back to 2008, 2009, 2010. This was before the BRI. Um, these concerns have been around for a while. And that's why I say not all of this opposition is inherent to the BRI. It's inherent to concern about the way China does business, and the BRI has just served to sort of magnify that. But as in Sri Lanka, China and the BRI are becoming a political football in many developing countries. You've seen it in Burma, in Pakistan, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, in the Maldives, that opposition parties are increasingly using concern about growing debt to China, about China's practices in these investments to criticize ruling parties, and when they win elections and come to power, they're questioning, canceling, reviewing, amending these deals with China. Um, and the West, I think Dan will talk more about this than I will, but you've seen a much more concerted effort, not only in developing countries to question these deals, but in the West to both push back against Chinese investment, but also promote an alternative vision for regional infrastructure and provide some of these countries that are seeking investments, because there are legitimate infrastructure needs in the Indo-Pacific, to provide them with an alternative uh, that doesn't carry so many strings attached. So having said that, I've left a lot here for Q&A, but uh, I want to come back and just reiterate that I think five years later, the BRI does very much have a brand problem. And I wonder, when I ask myself, can China, can China change? Can they change the BRI? Can they change international perceptions about the BRI? Uh, I'm not particularly hopeful. I think the Chinese recognized fairly early on that there were some perception problems, even before this opposition crystallized in, in the West. Uh, you saw it in their attempt to change the name, as Walter mentioned, from One Belt, One Road to the BRI. Uh, they tried to le relabel the CPEC corridor, recognizing how much opposition that that's generated in India. 
given that it's uh, traversing uh, territory claimed by India and Kashmir. Uh, You've seen efforts inside China to reshape the narrative, but I haven't seen to date any efforts to fundamentally change the way they do business. And ultimately, I think that is the only way they're going to be able to assuage some of the concerns in the West and in the developing world, simply changing phrases and and elements of the narrative isn't going to cut it. But changing the way they do business, changing the fundamentally changing the BRI, a project that carries the hallmark of President Xi Jinping, that is very much part of his legacy, that is now enshrined in the Chinese constitution, is is no easy feat. So I very much look forward to my co-panelists' views on how China is viewing this changing international environment toward the BRI and look forward to Q&A. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Um, could I just ask you a, a question before, before we move on? You and, I, you and I have talked about this before, um, but, but what, um, what responsibility lies with the governments themselves for taking the money? Is it so often we talk about that this as if they are just passive recipients who are victims of this various program part of the Chinese, but we don't talk much about why they took the money in the first place. Mm. What are wrong, what's wrong with the governance in these places that if the deals are so bad, why did they so uh, readily take them? A great question. In some cases, the deals are bad for the country on a long-term basis, for the people, for the sustainability of the economy, but they may not be so bad for the ruling party or the dictator in power, or whoever's pockets are being lined or whoever's pet project is being carried out. You know, if you're, if you're from the rural district of Hambantota and you've risen to be Sri Lanka's president, um, it's a good thing if you can get an international airport and a port built in your district. Um, so you're going to take that deal and you're going to take the money that starts flowing into your campaign coffers illegally from Chinese firms when there's an election a few years later. Um, but is that a good deal for the country? When the terms are actually revealed later on, um, many in the country, in the opposition, many economists find that, that no, it wasn't a great deal. So part of the problem is that these deals are being signed in secret, that they're not up to the standards and the level of transparency that we're used to. And if, if they had been, they might have been rejected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, I, I differ a little bit, and, and you know this, in terms of uh, what we think is the prospects for change in China. But, but one of the things that I, I think does argue for more change and something that Beijing will understand is the practicality of it. That is that it's becoming obvious that these projects are not sustainable in the way that they do them. So you go in, you put up all of this political capital and economic capital with a dictator or somebody, and then he's gone, and you've got to you've got to adjust. Some of the can- projects get canceled. Others go on under uh, different terms. But just from a practical perspective, you would think in Beijing, at some point, they're going to understand that in order to be sustainable, they have to conduct business differently. But that's a good segue maybe to Hyunsun to tell us what's going on in Beijing in this regard. Thank you, Dr. Lohman, and um, thank you, Jeff, for, for the invitation to be here. Um, I really enjoy your uh, re- remarks about the external assessment of, uh, of the BRI, and I'll talk about some of the internal analysis about, about where BRI really stands. And, and I think one thing is quite clear, that BRI is not a 
if BRI reveals anything about China's decision making and China's foreign strategy is not as mature, it's not as sophisticated as we as we we thought it would it, it was. BRI did not come up with a comprehensive or a completely mature thought process with uh, with projects designed and with everything thought through, which is why that in in China the people say well with reform and opening up. Uh, Deng Xiaoping's famous remark was that we're crossing this river by feeling the stone. So now BRI turns out to be the second time that China is crossing the river by feeling the stone. So um, I think in terms of the assessment of BRI at five years, it's, it's very difficult to draw a completely black or completely white conclusion. And it's very difficult to say that it's completely a success or completely a failure. Glass is half full or half empty depends on depends on how you see it and where you and where you stand. So from the uh, the analysis inside China and the focus internationally, of course, most of the attention has been focused on the problems, because uh, where there's a problem, there's uh, there's room for analysis and there's room for for news. But um, in terms of the effectiveness of the impact, I feel it is very difficult to, to draw a binary conclusion about, um, about BRI. So for example, after five years, if we compare China's external influence today with China's external influence back in 2013, I think there's no doubt that China has been able to expand its sphere of influence and expand its, its, uh, its impact and the influence over over countries in its periphery, and also country in the Middle East, country in, in Africa, and some countries in, Af uh, in Europe as well. And if we could compare the numbers and say that there are countries that are like-minded countries to China, and the countries that support China's mega infrastructure projects, of course, there are more and more doubts. But I would say the number of those countries have also increased as a result of BRI in the past five years, rather than decreased. So we know that the BRI has uh, has, in, has encountered problems in countries uh, in, um, such as Malaysia, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, and I particularly appreciate the uh, the comment from from Dr. Loman and Jeff about the opposition parties having doubts about the um, economic viability and the political sustainability sustainability of these infrastructure projects. However, if you look a little deeper. The, these opposition parties, once they become the ruling parties of these countries, they still need to work with China on infrastructure. And I think that is fairly clear in the case of Aung San Suu Kyi government in, in Burma, who just assigned, um, established a BRI committee, committee with, uh, with China on how to better promote the development of BRI across Burma. And that is also, to my knowledge, true with the case of, um, in the case of Malaysia, where the Mahathir government has come up with alternative projects that they want the Chinese to sign. So I think this, uh, this opposition party problem or this political transition problem for China, China is, I feel that, at least in China, is no longer a new problem. And the Chinese have been able to establish some level of confidence that even if there's an opposition party and there is a political transition, eventually when they look for partners, especially financiers of their project, um, of their in infrastructure projects or domestic economic development project, China is still a very big player in the room. So I think the Chinese have developed some sense of uh, some sense of confidence or comfort there. Then the countries who were originally suspicious of uh, of BRI, namely Japan and India, on the top of the list, 
Um, but then again, this year, we also know that the Sino-Japanese relations and Sino-India relations have also improved rather than, um, rather than deteriorated. But of course, the main reason for that is not, is not BRI, but the uncertainty associated with the U.S. policy and the uncertainty associated with policy adjustments of these countries in the context of the great power competition. But even from the point of view of uh, great power competition, that we know that BRI has run into a lot of problems, but it doesn't mean that the competitiveness or the challenge that BRI poses to the international system has decreased significantly as a result of that. So if we look at uh, this year, so we, we, we know that this year China's econo Chinese economy has run into uh, some major problems. And in terms of the investment into BRI, we're also seeing the investment slowing down. So for example, uh, during the first half of this year, the total investment that China has put into the BRI countries was close to 7.7 .7 billion US dollars, which is 15% decrease compared to the same period last year. And if we compare the whole FDI portfolio, China's investment into BRI countries is only around 12% of China's global um, global FDI. So that shows you how much China is really investing into BRI. And if we compare the um, uh, the contract service, which is a key component of the economic logic for uh, for China's BRI to create jobs, to to absorb the overcapacity in the China's domestic market, we also see that the total amount of the uh, new contracts signed during the first half of this year decreased by 33% compared to the same period in 2017. So a lot of this, uh, this, uh, this slow, slow down of the uh, economic input and the output out of BRI, um, this year, of course, there's a cumulative effect of uh, what happened during the past four years. But I would also argue that the, uh, the key reason for this lies in in a fundamental defect in the design of the BRI started from, from the very beginning, which is also an internal conflict of this, uh, this logic that, that went into BRI. So when China first contemplated or thought about BRI, thought that, well, this uh, overseas infrastructure market could be an opportunity for China's overcapacity. And China, since China has accumulated a large amount of foreign reserve, at the peak it was $4 trillion US dollars, and China also needs to invest these foreign reserves somewhere. Therefore, use China's foreign reserves to open the overseas market will create business opportunities for China's domestic market. And at the same time, it will also create the, uh, um, the influence that China has aspired for outside, outside the Chinese border. So from the very beginning, the economic viability, I would say that for the very beginning of the BRI was not a top consideration for China. They were very eager to use a PR campaign and to portray BRI as a, as a benevolent effort as a benign public good that China was providing to the world. But the economic viabilities at the very beginning was not the top consideration. And if we look at the financing, the, the sources of, of financing for, for BRI, public financing, especially um, financing from policy banks such as CDB, China Development Bank, and China Exim, um, definitely occupies the, the largest share, the largest majority. Um, so for a lot of these infrastructure projects along BRI, the support from CDB or China Exim usually is higher than 80%. So for example, the East Rio Link in Malaysia, you see that China Exim providing originally, according to the, to the agreement, 
Exim was providing 85% of the financing, and the other 15% was going to be raised through um, through a capital financial capital market by uh, by Malaysia. But the problem is, or the internal log- logical problem of this this model is that. I think China, when it first considered these markets and these opportunities, it failed to take into consideration of an essential problem that why the market has always been there, but the capital is not there. So in another word, the Chinese were having their eyes on the markets and the opportunity and the contracts these BRI countries could afford, but they failed to ask the question that why international bankers and financiers have not identified these opportunities as good ones. So I think that that's really the, the essential problem. So China saw the market, and China was willing to use its public financing to support the Chinese companies going into those markets. But once they're there, and after a couple of years, they realized that many of these countries have sovereign risks, and extremely high sovereign risks. And that's the fundamental reason that they cannot raise the funding on the international financial market to support their infrastructure projects. And China came in with this very large pot of money and telling them that we're willing to support these projects in your country. But then that's where the Chinese wake up to the next step problem, which is that, is this really sustainable? So when this... When, when the countries like Pakistan receive the money from the, from the Chinese side, it also creates questions in, inside, say, Pakistan, that people started to ask that why is China willing to throw in this much money into our country? And they started to, to making, uh, making demands. That, for example, basically up until late in 2017, I would say when you talk about CPAC, uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor in Pakistan, a lot of the Pakistanis see that as a Chinese free aid project. It's not investment and it's not loans. And the Chinese policy community spent a lot of efforts to correct that misunderstanding, telling the Pakistanis that these are not free money. We also need returns by the end of the day. And that creates problems politically because the Pakistanis were having a, a different expectation about the benevolence of the Chinese, Chinese financing. And then in countries like, like Burma, in countries like Sri Lanka, I think the Chinese generosity or the so-called benevolence is being interpreted as having ulterior motives. That why is China being so generous with its financing when nobody else is willing to help us out. Although I would say that in some African countries, the African leaders seem to have a different interpretation, which is that by the end of the day, we will not be able to repay the Chinese loans. But we were not going to be able to repay the loans anyway. So the Chinese have had already uh, established a record of debt forgiveness or debt, debt alleviation in Africa. So I would say that some countries or some leaders in Africa is very much relying on the fact that or the hope that China in the future will just forgive those debts. And if you ask the Chinese that, what's your reaction to that? Well, say, well, we do have a track record of forgiving debts for African countries. And maybe depending on the significance of the country like Djibouti, Things are ported, um, the port and the uh, the military base is already there. Depending on the significance of the country, the Chinese I believe that they will uh, forgive some of the debt, but definitely not all. And those that forgiveness will come with, come with uh, political concessions and strategic concessions that the Chinese will demand. So, if we look at how China sees BRI today, I would say that the uh, introspection or the retrospection, the soul searching about the problems, why this has generated so much negativity, is very much on the top of the agenda um, these days. So, 
a lot of these lessons or these problems, obstacles, I don't think the Chinese expected them when they first came up with the OBOR or BRI. And these five years have offered the Chinese the opportunity to go into these, uh, these, these obstacles and go into these difficulties and to understand what the problems really are. And then the question is, uh, if they understand what the problems are, are they going to have an effective adjustment or correction of those, uh, of the, those problems? On that, I agree with Jeff. I think a fundamental policy adjustment or policy change or rebranding is going to be extremely difficult because BRI has been has been shaped, has been promoted as Xi Jinping's signature foreign strategy. That's, uh, that's his, his signature project. And if we are, if the Chinese are going to rebrand it or fundamentally restructure the BRI, it's going to lead to a conclusion that Xi Jinping was wrong. And I don't think the, uh, the Chinese politics uh, today will afford that kind, of, uh, that kind of development. But more likely, we're going to see adjustments and modification of, um, of how BRI projects are being carried out. And I'll mention three of them that are, um, that are mostly, most popularly discussed in China. Um, the first one is that the Chinese are trying to figure out ways to widen or to broaden the sources of financing for the BRI projects. Um, the Chinese have been very, very eager to talk about um, PPP, public-private um, public partnership, for quite a while. For quite a while, so now the idea is that for the BRI projects to be to be proposed and to be approved, they need to come up with at least additional sources of financing that does not completely rely on the policy banks in China to provide the financing. And that's why for some, of course, AIB does not completely serve BRI, but for, I think AIB could serve as an example that you do see the projects supported by AIB are, co are jointly supported by ADB and World Bank. So I think to introduce um, other sources of financing into the projects is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a key area that the Chinese are looking into. However, the problem is, coming back to the economic viability of these projects, that until the China can prove that the, these projects they're investing in are economically sustainable and profitable in the, in the, in the future, it's very difficult to draw international financiers into, uh, into this scheme. And the reason, of course, China could argue that oh, we are there for not only economic reasons, but also for China's domestic market reasons, or for China's domestic political reasons. But those rationale or those reasoning do not necessarily apply to other investors. So I think the Chinese will have to um, look hard at their economic model. And if they want to try to sell it to international financiers, they will have to do a much better job. The second area that um, that I see a lot of soul searching in China is um, is how to change the relationship between the infrastructure projects and local economic activities. So the original Chinese logic is that once you build the road, they will come. You build the road, the factories will come, investors will come, and the job will follow, and economic activities activities will follow. So that was the China model, but this model so far has not being apparent or evident in the BRI countries or in the BRI projects. And when the Chinese look at the reason why, a key essential reason that they identified is that the BRI projects are mostly signed between the Chinese side and the recipient government, the central government, but not the local government. 
So, for example, when China built the railway in Ethiopia, they just needed to sign the deal with the Ethiopian central government. And the local governments were not really involved in the process and the economic planning and the job creation or the, the follow-on economic activities are not really included in the, uh, in, in the in the scheme so far. So how to include local governments in the BRI projects is, uh, is a key area. And the last one that I hear most is this distinction between G2G and B2B. That's another, another I would say, the, the internal problem or internal defect with, uh, with the BRI design. G2G means government to government. B2B means business to business. So when the Chinese talk about the BRI, they want to tell the recipient government that these are economic activities. They're carried, they might be carried out by, by state-owned enterprises. But state-owned enterprises, essentially, by the, by the end of the day, they are still economic and commercial players. So they are not political players. I think that's a message that the Chinese try very hard to send. Therefore, when a contract or an agreement is signed with a Chinese SOE, the Chinese want the recipient government to understand that this is not a government activity. This is a commercial actor activity. It's a company activity. So therefore, they want the recipient government to respect the economic logic of the, um, of the, of the project signed. But the reality is that on one hand, Chinese companies' activities are being perceived as government activities which means that the SOEs and the companies, they have to take into consideration the political need of the Chinese central government when they, um, when they, sign, when they sign these projects. And one example that, I can, uh, that came to mind is that when China and Thailand was negotiating about the terms for the, uh, the financing terms for the Sino-Thai railway project, a Thai government told the Chinese that, well, considering the friendship between our two countries, you should give us these conditions, these uh, preferential conditions. So that's where I think the, uh, the, the company's activities are being perceived as government's per activities. But on the other hand, when the Chinese companies think about their economic viability and think about the profitability of these, uh, of these projects, they are also being perceived as, uh, as a part of the government players. So therefore creates this conflict between economic viability and friend political friendship with the recipient countries. So that's uh, the examples that come to mind is uh, in Pakistan, whether the Chinese financing is regarded as investment or are they regarded as loans or are they regarded as free aid. So the worst, what has made things worse is that irresponsible behaviors by Chinese companies have also been equated to irresponsible activities by Chinese government. So that's where we see a lot of research, a lot of projects being done about whether the Chinese companies are really doing, uh, do, playing a positive role in the BRI project, where they're playing a negative role in this China's uh, strategic design, um, that when the Chinese companies behave irresponsibly in the local community, they're perceived as part of China. So how to regulate the, uh, the behaviors of the Chinese companies is also, uh, is also another, another issue that um, China is thinking pre pretty hard about. So, all in all, I would say that in China, there are two views about China, uh, about Belt and Road Initiative. The first one is that uh, it's more negative, that BRI is wasteful, is uh, squandering away China's hard-earned well, hard uh, foreign reserves, and it's also generating the repercussion and the pushback from the, from the Western world, from the developed world. 
And the also the conclusion or part of that assessment is that the trade wars that we are seeing today between U.S. and China is also a result of China prematurely challenging the hegemony of the United States, and BRI is a part of that campaign. That's a more negative assessment. And the more positive assessment is that there's no free lunch. Belt and the road is not free lunch. It's not free lunch for the recipient countries. It's not free lunch for, for China. So China is going through this steep learning curve, and China will have to learn and modify its behavior going along the way. Where does the truth really stand is probably somewhere in between. It's uh, both the negative and the positive. So I'll just stop there. Thank you. That was terrific. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad you focused on all these economic uh, bits of it because um, – especially regarding the viability of the projects that they're investing in, because a lot of the response you hear from the U.S. side is um, that we ought to essentially be competing with the Chinese for what are bad investments. Somebody somewhere is going to be on the hook for those investments if the U.S. makes them. It's going to be either the company or the bank that makes the investment or the U.S. taxpayer if it is uh, if it's guaranteed by a U.S. Uh, government institution or agency. So I'm really glad you got into that. I hope we can talk about that a little bit more in, in the Q&A. Uh, let me turn to Dan. That's actually a good segue to his, uh, his uh, comments on policy reaction in the United States. Excellent. Well, thank you, Walter and Jeff, for hosting me here at Heritage today. And thanks to all of you for turning out. I'm impressed by your dedication this late in December, uh-huh. being here to hear about the Belt and Road. I'll focus my remarks on very much the kind of American perception, American response. Um, But I do want to briefly start with the big picture, which is that we're here to talk today about the Belt and Road at five years because the United States and China are engaged in a competition to shape the course of the 21st century. And in this contest, at stake is whether the prevailing international order that has backstopped peace, prosperity, and freedom will endure or whether China's emerging vision, a world defined by great power spheres of influence, rigged economic interactions, and ascendant authoritarianism will prevail. The Belt and Road is very much the cornerstone of China's ambitions in this competition and is already reshaping the world to its advantage in ways that Jeff has outlined. So that very much is the big picture. While the Belt and Road turns five, I would argue that America's response is maybe at year two. Uh, This in part reflects, uh, in some ways, a failure of imagination, much like we saw in the case of Chinese land reclamation in the South China Sea. I think American policymakers initially did not fully appreciate the scope and speed of Belt and Road and how it would serve to advance Chinese interests uh, in the world, whether it was pursuing military access, um, gaining financial and diplomatic leverage, uh, or radiating illiberalism abroad. That said, even if the U.S. response um, relatively lagged the kind of inception of Belt and Road, I would argue that given growing disillusionment with Chinese investment, as Jeff has described, there is very much a moment of opportunity for the United States to formulate not only a kind of response to the Belt and Road, but more importantly, to offer a compelling alternative vision for economic development in digital and physical connectivity. Let me now turn to kind of the U.S. response thus far. How has it evolved and where is it going? And then I'll close giving my perception anyways of sort of what has worked, what hasn't, and how the U.S. can proceed moving forward. So under the current administration in the last two years, the United States has taken, I would argue, a relatively strategic perspective on the Belt and Road, very much viewing it as part of the larger competition with China for global power, wealth, and influence. Um, let's Looking at the kind of public government line on Belt and Road, we've seen kind of an escalation of rhetoric. I would argue even more so than, than Jeff said that 
a year and a half ago, roughly, you had senior U.S. officials talking about that there were many belts and many roads, you're referring to Mattis, or President Trump at the last APEC CEO summit in 2017, um, calling for alternatives to, quote, state-directed initiatives that come with many strings attached. So U.S. officials were certainly critical of Belt and Road, but it was often roundabout or thinly veiled. Um, fast forward a year um, to this fall, and the rhetoric is much sharper. So, for example, Vice President Pence in November going to APEC in 2018, and here I'm quoting directly, saying, we don't drown our partners in a sea of debt. We don't coerce or compromise your independence. The United States deals openly, fairly. We do not offer a constricting belt or a one-way road. Uh, and then just, I believe, last week, National Security Advisor Bolton actually speaking here at Heritage, unveiling the new U.S.-Africa strategy, framed Belt and Road as, I quote, a plan to develop a series of trade routes leading to and from China with the ultimate goal of advancing Chinese global dominance. So you've seen very much a hardening of U.S. rhetoric from kind of this thinly veiled critique to one that essentially says this is a power play by China for global domination. Uh, beyond kind of this escalation of rhetoric, uh, the administration has put together a series of initiatives and policies, often working closely with Congress, that begin to look like an increasingly competitive and comprehensive approach to the Belt and Road. Um, and I'm, I won't try to identify every program and initiative, but let me hit a few highlights. Uh, a key part of this is resourcing, that one of the major critiques of America's response has been China deploys billions of dollars, even if often it inflates kind of the scale of its investments, where the U.S., really had very few new resources to throw at the challenge. This has changed very recently. So, for example, in October, uh, with bipartisan support in Congress and this part of the administration, um, the Better Utilization of Investment Leading to Development Act was passed and then signed by President Trump. Um, and what this act does is double the U.S., uh, essentially double America's development finance capacity to $60 billion, essentially creating a lot of new resources to try to get the U.S. private sector off the sidelines into markets where China is investing. And again, we can talk about, is it smart? Where should we be encouraging these investments? But it's probably the most significant change in kind of U.S., uh, certainly development finance um, in the last generation. Um, the new uh, U.S. International Development Finance Corporation that will result from this legislation will also have a much more flexible and expansive toolkit than the current overseas private investment corporation. Also on resourcing, actually just last week, the House and Senate passed the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, uh, which will authorize more than $1.5 billion over the next five years for the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Pentagon, all to support kind of a variety of activities in the Indo-Pacific aimed at strengthening and extending a rules-based international order. So while the U.S. is never going to match China's resources, it has far more to put in than it did even six months ago. Uh, you've also seen a major push by the United States to cooperate with allies and partners to advance alternatives to Chinese-backed uh, infrastructure. Uh, the United States over the past year has both signed bilateral agreements with Australia and Japan, and then most recently concluded a new trilateral infrastructure partnership. And while it's easy to say these are great talking points, there are actual concrete projects. So, for example, at APEC, um, Vice President Pence unveiled a new plan to build a $1.7 billion electricity grid in Papua New Guinea. This involved not only Japan and Australia, but also New Zealand. So there are concrete areas where the United States is now cooperating with its allies and partners to advance alternatives to Chinese-backed investment. Uh, a key part of the administration's evolving approach is what I would frame as efforts to constrain Chinese opportunities to invest in countries. So, for example, the U.S. Uh, this summer unveiled a new transaction advisory fund, essentially, that would help countries evaluate potential Chinese deals and not be taken advantage of 
in the way that happened in Sri Lanka, as Jeff has described. And then at APEC, Vice President Pence unveiled a new Indo-Pacific Transparency Initiative. The details, I think, are fairly unclear at this point, but it, from what I can discern, looks like the U.S., for example, will support um, investigative journalists in countries where China is investing, essentially making it harder for Beijing to cut the type of backroom deals that leave um, China with long-term leverage in recipient countries with a major financial hangover. There's also some sector-specific initiatives, for example, a new partner, smart cities partnership with ASEAN. So there's a lot of activity on the U.S. side, um, and I would argue it's more coherent and comprehensive than what we've seen, certainly in the past, and trending in a positive direction. All that being said, uh, despite significant headway compared to even a year ago, the, the U.S. response remains very much a work in progress. And while the administration deserves credit, as do both political parties in Congress, um, there's more work to be done. So what are sort of the next steps, in my view anyways, of where kind of the American response should go? One is to advance a positive alternative vision to China's Belt and Road strategy, enhanced U.S. investment and bilateral trade deals while necessary is insufficient. Um, the United States needs to once again advance and pursue multilateral high-quality trade and investment agreements, drawing a sharp distinction between trade with China, which has caused massive job dislocation here at home, and the overwhelming benefits derived from economic engagement with U.S. allies and partners. And so I know that's potentially controversial at this point, but if there's not a kind of multilateral trade and investment agreement on the table, the response to Belt and Road will, in my view, be inherently incomplete. At the same time, the U.S. needs to do more to develop an effective counter-narrative to China. Uh, at this point, as you've heard from the other panelists, the kind of narrative the Chinese have advanced is very much on its heels, um, given the kind of setbacks that have occurred. At the same time, though, the U.S. today lacks a robust non-military public diplomacy capability. Um, that could really play up what the United States is already doing, for example, still being the largest uh, source of FDI in the Indo-Pacific today. Uh, and while there have been some positive steps um, by the administration, for example, um, a growing focus by the Global Engagement Center at the Department of State on China, um, a single office, by definition, is not going to be able to lead a kind of comprehensive whole-of-government approach. So there is very much a need for creative thinking in this area. Uh, at the same time, a narrative without facts on the ground is not very compelling. And so in my view, beyond kind of having a more effective public diplomacy toolkit, the administration and the government need to think seriously about, are there uh, at least a handful of high-profile but also commercially viable projects the U.S. could back in the Indo-Pacific, in the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America that could become very much the core of a counter-narrative to Belt and Road. The U.S. is supporting very visible projects. Um, at the same time, while the passage of the BUILD Act as a potential game changer in terms of U.S. resourcing uh, for an American response to China's Belt and Road. Uh, the legislation that set this all in motion leaves a lot to be determined by the administration and Congress. And so whether this new U.S. International Development Finance Corporation will realize its potential as a tool to compete or not uh, remains very much in question. So there are a few areas I would argue the administration and Congress can come together to ensure um, this new corporation lives up to its potential. For example, one would be creating a new office for strategic investments, essentially baking in a focus on long-term competition with China. The legislation did not specify that the Development Finance Corporation would seek to compete directly. Um, at the same time, in the past, um, U.S. development finance has been graded on the return on investment, which made sense in an era that was not one defined by great power competition. But, Walter, you and I may have a stimulating discussion on this. I would argue if the U.S. is going to compete with China, at least some projects will be in places with weak regulatory environments, um, a lot more risk. And so Congress and the American people will, may have to take a different perspective on 
what is kind of the appropriate level of risk and what are the returns um, if we are going to compete with China head on. And then lastly, for this new development finance corporation, I would argue it needs to have the ability for surge financing. The legislation that created it um, does not create sort of expedited funding. But with countries increasingly rethinking Chinese investment, there are real opportunities for the U.S. to come in and offer an alternative. Today, though, it's hard for the U.S. to be rapid and agile, and so I would argue Congress should think of creating a new authority um, for surge financing. On coordination with allies and partners, um, a lot's being done already, but there are definitely some untapped opportunities. Uh, One of them is beyond coordinating national efforts. For example, this trilateral partnership with Japan and Australia. The U.S. and its allies and partners could work together in international financial institutions, development banks, to direct those significant resources toward projects um, that matter most from both an economic and security perspective. Uh, Europe's also an increasingly influential player here in this infrastructure space. Um, The European Union recently unveiled a new Euro-Asia connectivity strategy, although if you ask people in Brussels, they'll say it's not competing with Belt and Road. In reality, it is very much an alternative. And so there are opportunities today for the U.S. to engage with Europe on kind of joint infrastructure projects. And then lastly, I want to turn to the digital domain, which is emerging as a key area for U.S.-China competition. There's been a lot of focus on bridges, roads, ports, um, all the kind of hard infrastructure associated with China's Belt and Road strategy. But the digital piece, I would argue, is potentially the most consequential. Um, Ultimately, whether it's undersea cables, um, uh, fiber optic networks, telecommunications, um, online platforms, Uh, whatever sort of China is advancing in the digital space, it ultimately touches on not only American security interests, but also prosperity and even values. For example, China is exporting elements of its surveillance complex to third countries through the export of what they call smart cities. Uh, And so the U.S. on the digital side could really up its game, for example, by working with Europe and Japan to establish a digital development fund that would support information connectivity projects in developing countries. Um, but only supporting companies that adhere to globally recognized norms of online privacy and human rights. Uh, The U.S. also could, for example, expand the digital attache or the digital attache program, which currently is is only in about 12 countries, but it's part of the Department of Commerce and essentially a way for U.S. companies to engage um, with developing countries around digital trade and, and products. So, I would close by saying the U.S. response to Belt and Road is much more coherent uh, and comprehensive than in the past, but still has a a decent ground to to move forward. And certainly with countries around the developing world increasingly concerned about the negative implications of Chinese investment, the United States very much has a window of opportunity, and in my view, now is the time to seize it. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much, Dan. yeah, we could have a whole program on the Build Act and its effectiveness and how it how it's likely to work, but um, maybe maybe you can respond to this. We'll have just a, a brief exchange on it. But uh, two points you made about it actually contradict the two main points that were used to sell it. So one that it's about China. It actually is not specifically about China, and in fact, it's just a doubling of OPEC. And so. Who knows how this money is going to be spent once companies start act, um, start, start accessing it and applying for the for the funding? Um, I'm not convinced that it's going to go to strategically important areas vis-a-vis the Chinese. Um, and the other thing is the risk. The other selling point for this was that don't worry because it doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost a merit taxpayer a dime. Now you're saying that well we might have to invest in some things that are risky. In other words, things that will come back to the American taxpayer. So how do you respond to those two, those two issues? 
Absolutely. I think there was significant tension even within Congress in terms of how the bill that was framed and sold, where you had, I would say, often perhaps on sort of the right-wing side of the political spectrum, support for the Build Act as a tool and instrument to compete with China. On the left wing, more seeing this as an opportunity for development, U.S. engagement in the world. Um, I would argue that it's both, uh, that it's appropriate that the legislation, the initial legislation, did not explicitly call out China, although when you look at the final language, it did call for competing with state-backed investment initiatives. So there's sort of a a stealthy reference to China, if you will. Um, And so I, I think very much what is needed is uh, I wouldn't call it the sort of counter-China office, but having a part of the New Development Finance Corporation that would be looking at strategic investments, so trying to understand and work with the Defense Department, with the intelligence community, and look at what are the kind of handful of projects or locations that actually matter. And I agree, we certainly shouldn't be throwing money at sort of bad Chinese projects that really don't have a whole lot of consequence for American security. But to take a hard look at the world and say, these are where we really need to sort of make our investments, even if the return may not be as good. Um, And so, again, I wouldn't want to call it a sort of counter-China office, but I would frame it as strategic investments. Um, And it's a concern I have, too, that without something like that baked in, that the new Development Finance Corporation, despite the intent of many who, I think, signed on to it, will not have that focus on strategic competition with China, even if it is more implicit and internal. Um, On the risk, uh, I think it's, it's an area ripe for debate. I mean, my view is that overall... It has to, the new Development Finance Corporation has to be a good steward of American resources. But if it is seen as an instrument for advancing U.S. influence and competing with China, um, some of the projects that may matter most from a kind of military national security perspective may be in countries where there is more risk. And I think the, the portfolio ideally would be balanced in a way where you you will have more investments in areas that are likely to give a return. But uh, to me, it's, it's better to sort of preemptively socialize Congress and the American people that some of these investments are going to be more geopolitically motivated, and ideally they will have a positive return, but it's a different metric than we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. And again, there's, I think, room for disagreement on sort of how much of the portfolio should be more kind of geopolitically oriented versus purely kind of where the U.S. private sector would go. Right. Good. Great. Thank you. Um, I want to turn it over to questions. I know sometimes there's a little bit of uh, thinking time involved in the transition to, between the panel and, and questions, so please give it some thought. And I, in the meantime, I do want to ask uh, Yunsen uh, a question, which is you li- laid out um, all of the possible ways or sort of where the current debate is on be- in Beijing in terms of adjustments on BRI. Is there any opportunity for institutions outside of Beijing to play a role in shaping whatever those changes are, whether it's on a bilateral basis with the Europeans, the Japanese, the Americans, or whether it's these financial institutions like the ADB and, and World Bank that may get involved. Uh, we saw, you know, that's the way AIAB developed. It was a lot more international influence. Is, is the BRI open to international influence on its standards and, and the way that uh, the money is governed? That's a great, great question, um, Dr. Lohman. Yeah, the, there have been questions about whether whether the international community can actually play a role. But um, I think it depends on where those advice or where those uh, those assistance come from. Um, I think the, for example, China reached out very enthusiastically to Japan to cooperate and collaborate on BRI project. And Japan has been quite cautious at the very beginning, but starting from I would say mid-2017, the Abe administration has been sending signals that, okay, we're willing to work together with China. And most recently, when he visited Beijing, they reached an agreement about China-Japan cooperation in third countries. 
And a lot of those uh, cooperation will have a direct impact over over the BRI project. So I think there there, there is that, that possibility. And for the multilateral development banks, the Chinese have been quite eager, actually, to get them involved in some of the BRI projects. Not the most strategically important ones because uh, they may not make, make, make total sense economically, but um, in investment projects and in commercial projects, and the Chinese are very eager to involve these, uh, these uh, MDBs. I think one question is that whether the Chinese will be open to uh, collaboration or engagement by the United States on issues related to BRI. On that, I think the official narrative from Beijing is that, of course, we're open. We would love to. We want to cooperate with the United States uh, if, if U.S. does have such an intention. Um, but I think the internal judgment is that given how much U.S.-China relations have soured and how much problem there is and how much great power competition now is currently involved, I think the, the space for that dialogue is, uh, is, is very small. But having said that, I think one um, group of actors that have been particularly active in the BRI from the United States are the private sector players. So you see for some of the um, BRI projects, because they're ma major infrastructure projects, right? So American companies like GE, Honeywell, and Caterpillar, they see BRI as a, as a great opportunity for them to increase their sales in, in China, and not only in China, but also in, for example, Africa. And there are also American companies that are uh, specialized on, uh, for example, security that are providing advice and even services to Chinese companies operating in those uh, politically vol volatile countries. But I think those are primarily private sector engagement with China based on economic logic of, uh, of projects, but not really political collaboration. Thanks. Thank you. Questions? Yeah. Um, let me go right here first. Thank you very much. Um, my, my name is Amel Akam. I'm from the Epoch Times. Uh, my question is about Chinese telecom firms. How uh, does this initiative, BRI, advancing the interests of Huawei uh, and, and ZTE in, in these countries, especially with respect to the rollout of 5G infrastructure? Anyone particularly well positioned to address that? I mean, I'm happy to. And others can chime in. So, I mean, a major kind of newer element of Belt and Road is this new digital Silk Road. So the Chinese are making a big push for kind of their domestic information technology champions to go abroad, in part under the umbrella of Belt and Road. And of course, that has a, a 5G component. Um, I believe Portugal actually just signed a deal with Huawei on 5G. So there is uh, a sort of a 5G component to this, but it's much larger. I mean, so for example, Huawei is, is trying to export what it calls safe cities, which is essentially their sort of urban surveillance program where you have a public security cloud linked to many um, surveillance cameras. Um, and it's been exporting this to East Africa, Middle East, I believe Indonesia as well. Um, I'm less familiar with sort of the ZTE piece of this, but in the digital part is a major and growing element of Belt and Road, for sure. Uh, yeah, right here. Yeah, Ken Meyer, Cord. Uh, first comment, um, the, uh, a cynic would interpret uh, the shrillness of Western criticism of the BRI uh, as a sign that the uh, BRI is actually succeeding. Uh, now, my question is, uh, how do the participating countries feel 
uh, about China's promise not to meddle in their affairs versus our uh, belief that we have not only a right but a duty to, enter, to meddle in other countries' affairs? Jeff, that's a good one for you. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I might buy that idea that, you know, Western criticism is a sign of the BRI's success if there weren't many signs that those in Beijing believe the BRI has run into real trouble as well. Uh, it's not just Western criticism. It's Chinese state-owned enterprises. It's uh, organs of the party. It's uh, parts of the Chinese state that recognize there are not only major financial problems, but narrative problems. And it's not only in the West. It's in the developing world. It's in arguably China's closest ally on the planet, Pakistan, where there's disconsent and criticism. So I don't think we can simply um, say, well, the BRI is succeeding and the West is unhappy about it. It's much more complex and deep than that, the opposition. Um, the second part of your question about the non-interference in domestic affairs, that has been a key tenet of sort of China's way of doing business for a long time. It's propaganda about the way it does business. In practice, that's very much not been the case over the last few years, and the trend has, has, has been moving in the wrong direction. And that is China has been interfering more and more in the domestic affairs of others, whether it's in the political system, whether it's in terms of academic freedom, whether it's in terms of suppressing dissent in other countries, essentially uh, enforcing alignment with Chinese foreign policy. Any criticism or dissent against Chinese foreign policy is being met with sharper sticks and greater efforts to punish those who are sort of disobeying Beijing. And again, we can go back to 2010, the Nobel Peace Prize in Norway. We can look at Singapore after the South China Sea ruling. We can look at South Korea when it agreed to deploy the THAAD missile system. We can look at unprecedented levels of interference in Australian politics, and we see a trend over the past six or seven or eight years of China growing more brazen in the degree to which it's interfered with the politics and economics of host countries. Uh, I think there's a great deal of evidence to support that contention and evidence that is spread across the globe in the West and in developing countries. And we, you know, we can talk more about that, but... This is part of the component of sharp power that I discussed in my presentation, intolerance for dissent. And dissent is met with retribution. And that has been a, a very steady and clear trend. Thanks. I'm Steve Hirsch. I'm a journalist here. I have a question for uh, Yun Sun. Uh, Yun, when you were talking about Burma, you mentioned that Burma had uh, set up a, a BRI committee or, or, or body of uh, some sort to help it cooperate. Uh, my question is, uh, is that action uh, typical of what other countries have done or is it, is it, is it more, uh, is, is it more engagement than surrounding countries have done? And if it's more, has the, did the United States uh, take any action to try and convince them not to take it? to do it. Thank you for the for the question. Um, is it more than what China has done? It depends on what, uh, more than what other 
what other country has done in terms of accepting or embracing the Chinese BRI. Well, if we look at ASEAN countries, I think Burma is the one that has actually established a specific committee dedicated to the advancement of BRI in their country. I don't see that in other mainland Southeast Asian countries. Yeah, and I don't see that in maritime Southeast Asian countries. But if you talk about Pakistan, if you compare Burma to Pakistan, I think Pakistan does have dedicated government coordination mechanisms to to support the CPAC process, uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Um, well, Burma's embracement, uh, the embracing of BRI has come relatively late from the Chinese standard. And they were hoping that the Aung San Suu Kyi government, um, well, they were understanding that with the political transition that happened in 2015, Aung San Suu Kyi government could have a different attitude towards the Chinese investment in their country. And that has turned out to be true, that the Aung San Suu Kyi government at the very beginning was quite concerned about the, uh, the implication of the mega Chinese infrastructure projects in their country, particularly associated with the Jopio Special Economic Zone and the Deep Seaport. But what happened was the Rohingya crisis in the Rakhine state, and that pretty much put Myanmar back into the prior state or the status in the international community. And the, the, there are sanctions, there are isolations of, uh, of, of Myanmar again. And I think for NLD government to deal with that, um, the Bako is a political sensitive issue domestically. And what that also created inadvertently or as a consequence, is that China again turned out to be the only, almost the only one supporter of Burma internationally. And um, I think that international context or that external context has laid the foundation for uh, Myanmar's this decision to establish the Belt and Road Committee. I have not seen anything from the from the U.S. side, but then again, I feel that U.S. policy towards Myanmar currently is very dominated by the Rohingya issue. It's a human rights agenda, so um, yeah, there's always this argument about Burma being strategically important, therefore deserves um, deserves additional consideration from the United States. But um, in in light of the Rohingya crisis, I just don't see that happening. You know, I think what um, what makes me uh, sort of more practical than some others out there looking at this problem and really looking at the practical impact is that I come to it from more of a Southeast Asia background. That was mostly what I've been focused on over the years. And I just know that all the countries in Southeast Asia will take the money. So you're not going to eventually motivate them not to take the money or to take worse terms from someone else. And the Burma example is a good, is a good one in that, um, yeah, some things happened after the Rohingya crisis, but one of the first things Suu Kyi did was reach out to the Chinese after she was elected. And the Chinese, vice versa, reached out to her. Chinese, in fact, were building connections with the NLD before she won the election. The Chinese are flexible, the Chinese are practical, and I know everyone in the region is. And so that's why I tend to want to look at this in a way that acknowledges that the Chinese are going to be a major economic influence in Southeast Asia and many of the other places that we're talking about for decades. And so we've got to find a way to deal with this that is not sort of great power geopolitics, 19th century or quasi-Cold War way of dealing with it because it's not going to work. Right here in the center. Uh, 
my name is Kami, but I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And Daniel, you mentioned something about giving training uh, people uh, the, in those countries to evaluate these uh, the projects. Are those uh, training on the base of the model that we had, uh, uh, you know, like when Russian came to Afghanistan, we got a lot of Pakistani st uh, in students here, uh, uh, the USAID uh, project, you know, basically that was designed to get new generation, uh, give them more American orientation and help them for future to protect American interest in that part of the world. So the training that you just mentioned is that model on uh, US uh, uh, AID model that was like 30 or 40 years ago, or it's just kind of very limited project that would just train some Paks, uh, Pakistani to how to evaluate those projects on financial basis. And my question to Jeff is, Jeff, I know you have kind of hard feeling that Pakistan is bandwagoning uh, with China. Uh, I, I mean, you know, in terms of educational and cultural uh, part, Pakistan and Indian are still very close to American because, you know, they love to learn English and English is their official language. So isn't that kind of short-sighted on uh, a policy on American uh, part that when we have this kind of very pro-Western prime minister in Pakistan, you know, his wife has Jewish background, basically, and he has two kids from that. So instead of supporting him, we are b being very reactionary and short-sighted. We cut Pakistani army officers training that they used to get uh, in the United States. So we, we need to offer more program like this in order to, you know, give American side of the picture that wherever American go, they don't try to take over the country like Chinese. See, Chinese are at the beginning, they were saying that in Gwadar, that is the support in Pakistan, they were saying we should have Chinese currency there. So no, it's like a very, uh, open question that if they want to take over the country or they are interested to provide job or do investment in those countries. So my question is basically about educational and taking for U.S. to take advantage of cultural educational aspect that U.S. already has strengthened that part of the world. Thanks. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Dan, the first part was directed to you, which seems to be the exactly how are we going to use AID to help evaluate Investments and sure. decisions. So it's not necessarily even AID. For example, Treasury has an Office of Technical Assistance that supports um, training to for foreign officials to sort of understand and manage these types of big infrastructure projects, evaluate the financing. Um, with this sort of new uh, financial transactions sort of consulting uh, advisory service, I mean, I, I think it'll be much more on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, I, I haven't seen a lot of detail in terms of how it will function, but I think it will be probably much more targeted and really trying to help countries understand when you have kind of a Chinese offer, what does it mean in terms of your long-term repayment ability? What are the actual terms? Um, and then ideally build more capacity to actually manage projects. I mean, the reality is often, uh, sometimes the Chinese projects are not even the most cost competitive. I mean, there are cases, I think in the Maldives most recently, where the, the port was actually given to a Chinese company, even though that was a more expensive bid. And that came to light after there was the transition in the Maldives. So I don't think it'll be sort of exactly modeled on the past. Um, and there are a lot of also interesting multilateral models to look at. For example, um, regional centers of excellence. Singapore already has an infrastructure center of excellence. You can imagine trying to leverage that to train more kind of officials from around the region to kind of manage and adjudicate these contracts. Mm -hmm. Interesting. You know, the, the other thing I've had a hard time uh, on this topic uh, 
reconciling, again, from a Southeast Asian perspective, and particularly coming at it from uh, working with the business community for many years, is that uh, I've met so many brilliant economists and financiers in Indonesia and Malaysia and elsewhere. Um, and so I'm skeptical sometimes that it's really training that's necessary. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe in the Maldives, but even in Sri Lanka, I mean, you have brilliant people, you know, educated in Europe and and uh, the U.S. and in major institutions and economics, you know, the people who built the, the Indonesian economy were all Berkeley-educated economists. And now suddenly these people don't have the capacity to try to understand the complexities of uh, their interaction with China and the, and, the, and the legal instruments to do that. I, I don't know. It's something I haven't really been able to reconcile myself at this point. Uh, Jeff, do you want to respond to the thing about U.S.? Uh, I, I think it was a good question, but I think it cuts more to the, the heart of the bilateral U.S.-Pakistan relationship, and that's a subject that I'm, I'm very interested in and very passionate about, but one a, a bit divorced from the discussion centered on the BRI we're having today, so that's something maybe we could follow up on a sidebar with after the presentation. Thank you. Excuse me, sorry. Hi, my name is uh, Dmitry. Thank you very much for the interesting discussion. My question is about the role of Russia in BRI. And uh, I know that there was some talk before of linking the Eurasian Economic Union with the BRI, uh, but that's kind of died off. And uh, so the other main part is, would you say the um, relationship between China and Russia and Central Asia related to the BRI is competitive or cooperative or both? It's a really a good question, and frankly, Russia is not uh, a component of of the narrative and the discussion here on the BRI very often, um, and and maybe that's a mistake. Uh, I, I, it's not an issue I've looked at very much, except I can say um, the level of Chinese economic presence and influence in Central Asia just in the past decade or so has been transformative. I mean, Russia was the dominant player there for a long, long time. And uh, just in, in the last 15 years or so, its position with China has flipped to the degree where China is now, in many cases, the largest trading partner or invest, source of investment for most of the Central Asian stands. Um, to date, under the sort of moniker of this tactical partnership the two countries have formed, Russia has seemed relatively comfortable with this uh, significant increase in Chinese influence and, and presence there. I've not seen any public signs yet that it's generated real tension in the relationship. Uh, I believe Russia has uh, formally supported and endorsed the BRI uh, and encouraged others like India to be more supportive of the initiative themselves. Um, but I haven't studied the issue from a Russian perspective enough to offer sort of a granular level of analysis on that. Just, just add to that. Um, I think there are there are there are two basically two aspects that you can you can look at um, in terms of China's relationship with Russia, with China Russia relations in the in the BRI. One is bilateral, and the other one is regional. So when you look at the bilateral, of course, the relationship has been defined as strategic co coordinative. 
comprehensive strategic coordinative partnership, which is higher than cooperative partnership, which means that China and Russia actually do coordinate on their positions coming to international matters. And we do see certain Russian support of China's position, for example, on South China Sea, not about the Chinese claim, but about China's position on, for example, the international ruling on the South China Sea. And there were also joint military exercises in the, uh, in the, in the South China Sea and sometimes coordinated or uncoordinated activities in the East China Sea vis-a-vis -vis Japan. So um, on the issue of, uh, of Central Asia, when BRI was first proposed in China, well, I would say October of 2012, and in all the policy discourse in the discussion in China about the BRI, two ferocious, uh, well, criticisms on the BRI. One is that if China's going into Central Asia, it's going into Russia's backyard. And the other criticism is that Middle East, really, China, are you sure you want to go there? So in terms of the Central Asia, I would say what happened was, uh, was the Ukraine crisis. They really limited Russia's capability to, to not to work with China or to oppose China or to stop China from advancing into, into Central Asia. So I, well, from what my research, I haven't seen too much Russian opposition or efforts to undercut or undermine China's effort in the Central Asia stance in terms of their infrastructure project. But then again, another component of this is a policy road. That China actually defined the Polo Silk Road as one of the angles of the of the uh, maritime Silk Road that goes to that goes to Europe. On that, I would say you see the most successful I would I would call it the most successful commercial project between China and Russia ever, which is the Yamal LNG project. It has been uh, it has been built and it has been um, it it has been producing starting from 2017. But even on Yamal project, when the Chinese wanted to invest in the Sabata port, the Russians declined the Chinese financing because of the strategic important location of the of, of Sabata. And then what I what we also see is Russia trying um, almost every single way to invite China to invest in the uh, Northern Sea Route because uh, Russia needs to update the infrastructure along the Northern Sea Route and it doesn't have the financing. But on that, I think the Chinese have been very reluctant. There's much more talking than, than actions in, um, in, in reality. Because what the Chinese see is that Russia portraying a concept dividend in the future about Northern Sea Route without, willing, without the willingness to make any compromise to the Chinese on the administrative control on the commercial profitability and on basically China's own freedom of navigation along the Northern Sea Route. So on that, I, I, see, I see more talking. And um, overall, I think the role of Russia in, in BRI is that China was afraid that Russia would be an obstacle. And now China, Russia is not an obstacle. So that's good enough for China. Hi, my name is Craig Cobb and I'm a journalist from Australia. I'm studying Asia, in the Asia Pacific at the moment. Um, I'll note that the Australian government just last week or the week before um, passed legislation to prevent foreign interference in our politics um, without mentioning any country in Pacific. But um, do you really think that the financial people in Beijing are so unsophisticated that they cannot see that these uh, third world countries can pay the, the the big loans back. Countries like Vanuatu, which I've been studying, and Solomon Islands, and all strategic 
centres for ports and airfields in World War II. Um, for example, Vanuatu, a huge wharf was just built in a place where only one container movement happens a week in trade, and it's a big enough wharf for an aircraft carrier. So um, do we really think that um, they're that unsophisticated financially that they don't see that these things are not going to work? And my second part is I'm interested to know, does the United Front Work Department uh, operate within the United States like it does in Australia, uh, interfering and pressuring Chinese students? Um, and uh, I know this happens in Australia, having studied it. Thank you. That's a, that's, um, that, that's a very good um, very good question. Um, gets to some of the motivations, I think, that Jensen addressed. I think you said that uh, BRI is not fundamentally an economic undertaking, and that's part of the problem. Did I, did I understand you right when you said that? Well, it's never just either all, right? So for every great power, any foreign policy initiative or any foreign policy, foreign strategy, it cannot be just purely serve one purpose. It just doesn't happen with, with any well, great power, as I can see. But in terms of which country that they are allocating more strategic consideration and more or more economic consideration, I think it depends on the country. Remember back in 2016 or 17, CSIS had a report about um, about Belt and Road Initiative, basically saying that Chinese are categorizing them into categorizing the countries into like three um, three categories. So countries with utmost strategic uh, strategic significance for China to exploit, um, China is willing to basically lose 70% of the investment they're making into the country. And then for some other countries, it's 50%. For some other countries, it's 30%. So I think it will be incorrect to say that China has only one goal coming to Belt and Road. It has to be a comprehensive calculation of different, of different things. But I would argue that from a fragmented authoritarianism point of view, that the actual policy implementation is not as smooth as what the policy making, what the policy design would look like from the very beginning. Anyone else have response to this, especially the second bit about the strategic nature of some of these investments? I think we've talked to that at some, some degree. Maybe we can talk a little afterwards and get more into the details. Let me take two final questions, and then we'll use that for everyone to wrap up. So right there in the back. <laughs> Uh, I'm Marvin Weinbaum, the Middle East Institute. Uh, economic slowdown in China, uh, serious debt overhang. Uh, is this having any impact on BRI? Is there any indication here that there's any rethinking that perhaps China has overextended itself? Thank you. Good. Great, and then uh, right here also. Hi, my name is John. I'm, I'm a student from George Washington. I have a simple question. So, so we took Sri Lanka as an example of uh, debt to China, to, our, to China. But how can how can countries like Sri Lanka come out of debt? So that's my question. Great. Why don't we start with Jeff and uh, answer those questions as you see fit, and wrap in any other yeah. closing thoughts you might have. I think Yoon would be uh, best position to answer the first question on uh, how the economic slowdown may be impacting Chinese assessments of the BRI. You know, with Sri Lanka, 
I think they presented an interesting case where the in the 2015 elections, uh, you had a, a party very much campaigning uh, against the type of deals that were signed with China, pledging and promising to revisit these deals when they came into power, renegotiate them and cancel them. And uh, what happened was the government came into power and finally got a look at the actual numbers, which had been secretive for, for a long time. I mean, they really didn't have any idea how much debt had actually been accrued to China. So they immediately put a hold on several of these port projects and asked to see the terms of the deals, found these objectionable provisions inside, uh, inside the deals, including freehold basis land being granted to the Chinese that they would effectively have sovereign control over. So they attempted to renegotiate these deals or cancel them, but found that they were, they were essentially too in debt to China to do so, that they were still due millions of dollars in interest payments every month. And the Chinese essentially said to them, you can put a hold on these programs, but we're still you're still racking up debt and you're still racking up interest payments and we will take you to court internationally to meet your contractual obligations. And so they ultimately found that they had, in their opinion, no other choice than to remove some of the most objectionable provisions from these deals, but to essentially renegotiate the debt. That's in part how China got control of the Hambantota port. It was originally uh, meant to be controlled by the Sri Lankans. And when they realized they didn't have enough money to pay the debt off, they said, we will, in return for debt forgiveness, give you a 99-year lease to the port in Sri Lanka. That on the surface, uh, there's nothing you know, inherently problematic about that. What concerns me is that when you dig into the details of how this new arrangement is going to be, this 99-year lease, I've mentioned this before, but from my reading of the details, it seems on the surface as if Sri Lankan companies, the Sri Lankan Ports Authority, will maintain a 51% stake in, in security and operations of the Hampantota port. You dig a little bit deeper, and it looks actually as if the Chinese have done some very creative uh, mathematics so that the Sri Lankan Ports Authority entity that manages the port is actually has a majority stake by Chinese investors on the backside. So through several layers and moving around, the Chinese have been able to retain control over the port security and operations. And we were in Sri Lanka in October, and I asked very senior level officials about this. I said, look, this is based off of some of the information I've seen. I may be wrong, but I'm asking, have you looked over the details? And they said, no, we haven't been able to find the final terms either. We share some of the same concerns that you do. We're not exactly sure what arrangements have been made and what exactly China is or isn't controlling. So it's, the, it's this secretive nature. There's this underlying uh, level of suspicion that's accompanying these deals for good reason. It's not just fabricated. It didn't come out of thin air. It's not because we hate the Chinese. It's because there's abundance of evidence to suggest that there are are these tactics being deployed? And there is reason for concern. Uh, how these countries get out of this debt is, is the question you asked, and it's a much more difficult one. Um, if they're unwilling to live with the financial uh, and, and sort of regulatory burden offered by Western lenders, I mean, that's been part of the appeal of China, is that 
there are no strings attached the way there are with Western lenders. If we go to the U.S., if we go to the IMF, if we go to the World Bank, yes, we can get loans, but they'll have to be accompanied by economic reforms. They'll have to be accompanied by human rights reforms, by governance reforms. With China, we get a free pass. We don't have to do any of that. We can just take the money. But what I think they're learning uh, over the last few years is that there are strings attached. They're different strings. Sometimes they're non-monetary strings, but they're real strings. And I think that's one of the key uh, points is that moving forward, countries have to evaluate these deals and these terms not just on the economic merits, but on, on these sort of strategic components as well. And they may have to be willing to take more of a hit on the economic side, uh, whether it's for debt forgiveness or whether it's for new loans, uh, if they want to avoid some of the strategic baggage that's accompanied the BRI. On the question of China's economic slowdown, I would say there are many reasons for the economic slowdown, and the BRI may not be on the top of the list. I would say the fundamental reason for China's economic slowdown is the need for restructuring of its economy, but the government has been dragging its feet in terms of delivering that because of the political obstacles associated with it. I think the uh, last year, China's economic growth was 6.7%, and this year with the trade wars, they're expected to be to be lower. And there are also questions as for whether next year China will still be able to maintain 6% of, uh, of, of growth. Um, there's also the issue of capital outflow that in the well, in the past two years has been a problem associated with BRI because companies and individuals were using BRI to smuggle their money out of China. So I think BRI is going to have an impact over China's economy, but maybe not immediately. If you look at, for example, the investment China is making, BRI country only received about 12 to 15 percent of the of the total investment they're they're making. But at the same time, they're harvesting much more in terms of the contract service that they can uh, they can get out of. Um, out of uh, BRI countries. Well, there are questions in China. That's actually the more difficult question compared to uh, compared to BRI. Where is China going, right? And there are there is a serious debate cu currently going on in China about that. Is China going to advocate for more reform, more opening up? The government rhetoric says so, but people don't have confidence. Um, or China is going to be more more closed down, like using ZTE as an example. So the past, in the past, the reformist argument is that well, you, if you can buy semiconductor chips on the international market, why do you want to buy? Why, why do you want to make it yourself? Why do you want to have an SOE to make it yourself? But now the counter argument is that see, that's why you need to make it yourself because you do not want to subject your vulnerability to the control of of the United States. So I think these are the hard questions that are going on in China about the restructuring of the economy and which way China China will be going. Um, but looking at BRI, I would say that BRI does have had an effect to supply Chinese companies, especially SOEs, with the business contracts as they need to, to dilute and digest their overcapacity. And I do see that will continue. Well, Dan, it's up to you to... All right, I'll be, I'll be fast. So quickly on kind of wither BRI and then one final point on U.S. response. Uh, I mean, there was... An interesting study actually by Citi arguing, and to me it was pretty compelling, that given the kind of trade tensions between China and the U.S., you'll actually see China, despite some of its economic challenges at home, putting more resources into Belt and Road in part, trying to diversify its relationships away from kind of the American market. Um, the other thing I think you'll see more and more of, which was alluded to during the, the panel, was China trying to bring in Western financial resources into Belt and Road to try to sort of uh, – 
supplement the funds it can put into the, the endeavor. In terms of the U.S. response, uh, I just want to make one final point, which comes down to this geopolitical kind of return on investment versus commercial return on investment. I think you heard from most of the panelists here today that if you had to force this, maybe we would all say, I don't want to put words in um, Yun's mouth, but probably we'd be come down on the side that Belt and Road is overall more focused on kind of a geopolitical return on investment. I think the U.S. now is grappling with the fact that we have always thought about our sort of economic statecraft as purely commercial return on investment. Now the challenge is where do we draw the line? What is the right division between the kind of geopolitical piece and the commercial piece? So thank you again for this great panel. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to all the panel for terrific discussion. It's uh, just what I was hoping for. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you all. Yeah. Yeah. You and I could have a great. We should have beer.